Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we're going to bring you the story of the List family murders. This is going to be a wild ride for all of us. So <laughs> buckle up and enjoy the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. As you are fully aware by now, I'm sure, you know that we are in spooky season fully already. In our hearts and our minds, <laughs> we're here. Last year, I was obsessed with the apple cider margarita. And I'm sure that I will bring that back to y'all ASAP just because I need it back in my life ASAP. But today I'm going to bring you a different version of an apple cider margarita. So what I did today was I took a shot of tequila, 1.25, 1.52 ounces, whatever your heart desires. Measure with your heart if you want to. Tequila, margarita mix, three ounces. Shake that together with ice, pour it in your glass. I really like to do a cinnamon sugar rim with these margaritas. So rim it if you want to, not necessary. Pour your margarita into the glass. And then the key ingredient here is I topped it with sparkling apple cider. It's like the sparkling grape juice we drink as kids for New Year's Eve. It's just sparkling apple cider. It's freaking delicious. I also mixed that stuff with Fireball. That was a great drink. I just <laughs> felt like my last drink I shared was Fireball and cream soda. So I didn't want to cheap out and say Fireball and apple cider, sparkling apple cider. Yeah. So instead you're getting another margarita recipe. But both are good. You actually just got two recipes for one in this one podcast episode. Um, but yeah, that is my apple cider margarita 2.0. I personally prefer my version from last year just because it's more tart. This way, it's definitely more sweet. So if that's more of your style, definitely try this style of the apple cider margarita and enjoy. If you remember... In the Jeanette De Palma case, I mentioned how her town of Westfield, New Jersey, 10 months prior, were dealing with another tragedy. Well, this is that case, and this is the List family murders. So, born in Bay City, Michigan, John List was the only child of German-American parents John Frederick and Alma Barbara Florence List. That is quite the name. John, like his father, was a devout Lutheran and Sunday school teacher. A year before his father died in 1944, he graduated from Bay City Central uh, high school. That same year, 1943, he enlisted in the United States Army and served as a laboratory technician during World War II. After his discharge in 1946, List enrolled at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. 
where he earned a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's degree in accounting. And he was commissioned a second lieutenant through ROTC. So November 1950, the Korean War escalated and he was recalled to active duty. While at Fort Eustis, I think is how it's said, in Virginia, he met Helen Morris Taylor, the widow of an infantry officer killed in action in Korea who lived nearby with her daughter, Brenda. They went on to marry on December 1st, 1951 in, in Baltimore, Maryland, and eventually moved to Northern California. During the time, the Army realized John's accounting skills and reassigned him to the Finance Corps. After completion of his second tour in 1952, List worked for an accounting firm in Detroit and then as an adult supervisor at a paper company in Kalamazoo, where his three children with um, Helen were born. By 1959, List had risen to general supervisor of the company's accounting department, but Helen was an alcoholic and had become increasingly unstable. I may be an alcoholic, but I am not unstable. In that way, at least. <laughs> I am unstable, just not in that way. I was going to say, not in that way. Uh, in 1960, Brenda, Helen's daughter, married and left the household. John then took his family and moved to Rochester, New York to take a job with Xerox, where he eventually became the director of accounting services. So for all those kids that don't know what Xerox is, you know, that was the big thing in the day. And, you know, he was, you definitely know he's a big shot that he was working at Xerox. In 1965, he accepted a position as VP and, uh, what is that? Comptroller, I think is how it said. I don't know. It was not a job I am familiar with, but I am also not very uh, business savvy, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he accepted a position as VP and comptroller at a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey. He moved his wife, children, and mother to Breeze Knoll, a nine, 19-room Victorian mansion at 431 Hillside Avenue in Westfield. So, he moves his wife and children to this giant 19-room Victorian mansion in Westville. So, on November 9th, 1971, John List murdered his entire immediate family with his 9mm Steyr, I think is how it said, 1912 semi-automatic handgun, and his father's Colt 22 caliber revolver. He first shot his wife Helen, who was 46, in the back of the head, and then his mother Alma, 84, above the left eye. 
This was done while his children were at school. His daughter, Patricia, who was 16, and son, Frederick, 13, arrived home from school and Liss shot them both in the back of the head. Liss then made himself lunch and drove to the bank to close his and his mother's bank accounts. He then went to Westfield High School to watch his son, John uh, Frederick, 15, play in a soccer game. List then drove John home and shot him repeatedly because evidence shows his son attempted to defend himself. He had a total of 10 gunshot wounds to the face and chest. I'm just like, what? Like, I, I, I get the whole, like, you snapped thing, but, like, these are your children. Yeah. These are your wife, your mom. Like, what? And then the fact that your one son literally fought back and you had, you literally, like, were able to shoot him ten times. I just, I don't understand. After killing his family, he placed their bodies in sleeping bags in the mansion's ballroom and left his mother's body in her apartment in the attic. He left a five-page letter to his pastor on his desk in the study claiming why he killed his family. List claimed that he saw too much evil in the world and he had killed his family to save their souls. He also talked of financial hardships. So after he moves the bodies and places them in the sleeping bags and all that and puts this letter out, he then cleared the, the, not cleared, he then cleaned the various crime scenes, removed his own picture from all family photographs in the house, turned the radio to a religious station, and departed. Now a quick reminder, this happened on November 9th. The bodies weren't discovered until December 7th. So what, October, November, so that's like a month. Basically a month goes by before anybody is like, so I haven't seen this family. It's like no time, but it's also a long time. Yeah. So if like me, you're kind of wondering how this was even possible. Well, the family was known for being reclusive and John actually sent letters to his children's school and part-time jobs explaining that they would be visiting their ailing maternal grandmother in North Carolina for a few weeks. So you can't even begin to tell me this was not premeditated. No, nah, he thought this through. Yeah. So Helen's mother was sick and actually was supposed to visit the Westfield-like residence, but had to cancel and List later said if she would have visited, she would have been his sixth victim. Could you imagine living the rest of your life knowing that you could have been killed? I don't want to. <laughs> right. Like, if you would have visited your daughter, 
yeah. you could have been killed. What? <laughs> so, to help further aid concealing what he had done, List stopped milk, mail, and newspaper deliveries to the home. Because, yes, at this time, there were still milk deliveries. They weren't very common, but they were happening. That makes me think of, like, Dennis the Menace. <laughs> you guys leave it to Beaver. I don't know. Uh, so, neighbors began to notice the rooms in the home were illuminated day and night and that there was no apparent activity in the home. When lights began burning out one by one, that's when they decided to call police. Mm. Not when you you notice that there's no sort of deliveries coming to this house. The lights are on all the time. No? Nothing? No movement? No, nothing? Nothing? Nothing. <sighs> Confirmed. Nothing. I'm just like, what? Meanwhile, I will get home and I'll be like, uh, Adrian, did you know that this is going on? Are you okay? <laughs> Got home the other night and her driver's side door was open. I was like, Adrian, um, is your door supposed to be open for a reason? I got home at midnight. It had been open since eight that night. Oh my gosh. <laughs> She's like, I don't even know what I was supposed to be grabbing. Uh I was like, well, you probably want to check and make sure that nothing got taken. I was like, I don't think anything did, but I definitely check. And then, um, Yeah. <laughs> Maybe try to start it. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm definitely one. Of, like, granted, we love our neighbor, so we definitely like keep an eye out on them, on her, and that. But I couldn't imagine not like seeing like activity over there and not being like, "What's going on? Are you mm -hmm. okay?" <laughs> I haven't seen you in a couple of days. Like, you don't even talk to your neighbors really but I feel like you would be like uh I haven't seen so and so like even leave or like sound like they're leaving their place yeah like I know that I'm opposite schedule of most people so I guess that if I saw like my neighbor across the hall if his truck was here all the time I would be like what the hell <laughs> something's going on um so Officers came to the residence, and they actually had to enter the house through an unlocked window leading to the basement. Once inside, they discovered the bodies in the ballroom, which I can only imagine how traumatizing that... One, you gotta think, these, these bodies have been in there decomposing for a month, so the smell probably is horrendous. Mm-hmm. You're coming from the basement. You enter, I don't know, maybe in the kitchen area. And you're walking through. And then all of a sudden you just see sleeping bags on the floor. Of like a dining room like area. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -mm. Nope. That is what nightmares are made of. <laughs> so they discover the bodies in the ballroom. And reportedly, the music List had put on was still playing over the intercom. And again, it was a religious station. So, that to me is just even creepier. Because 
I don't know if you've listened to a lot of religious stations growing up or if you currently do, but I don't think I'd want to be hearing, like, our God is an awesome God while, like, stumbling upon, like, five dead bodies. Agreed. (laughs) Uh, So police discovered the the letter List had left along with the reasons for why he killed them and listed, he also said that at least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if this would be the case. I know that many will only look at the additional years that the victims could have lived, but if yeah, but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Also, I'm sure many will say, how could anyone do such horrible thing? My only answer is, it isn't easy and was only done after much thought. You piece of shit. (laughs) So, Westfield is kind of a place where few violent crimes were recorded since 1963. And this just kind of thrust them into the national spotlight. I mean... Mm -hmm. I'm sure it did. I mean, how many times in your life have you, like, seen, you know, breaking news, entire family found murdered in their home? More often than I care to remember. Yes. But But it definitely always is news. Yeah. So, a national manhunt was launched for List. Police followed hundreds of leads with no success. All reliable photographs of List had been destroyed. The family car was discovered parked at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City. But there was no evidence that John List had boarded a flight. While the search for List continued, the victims' bodies were buried. Alma was flown to... Frankenmuth, Michigan? I think that Frankenmuth? I don't know. I should have asked some of my Michiganders how this is said, but so sorry. But she was buried in Michigan um, and interred at St. Saint Lorenz Lutheran's Cemetery. I'm guessing that's where her husband was probably buried. Um, Helen and her three children were buried at Fairview Cemetery in Westfield. Now, the mansion Breeze Knoll stayed empty until a fire destroyed it in August of 1972. It was ruled arson, but the case remains unsolved with no suspects. A new home was built on the property in 1974. Probably not my most desired place to build. I wouldn't want to be there. (laughs) I I mean, like I said, I do love me a haunted uh, place, but I don't I don't know if I want that that type of energy hanging around. In 1971, as the FBI later discovered, List had traveled by train from New York, not New York, from New Jersey to Michigan, and then to Colorado. 
He settled in Denver in 1972 and took an accounting job under the new name Robert Peter Bob Clark. This was actually the name of one of his college classmates, and the real Bob Clark later went on to say he didn't even know List other than the fact that they were classmates. Like, I don't know what I would do if someone that murdered their family started using my name. Um, my identity was stolen, and I found out whenever I went to go get my driver's permit, and the dude was in prison, but it was just for marijuana charges. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not a far stretch. <laughs> At that point, it was a far stretch, but now... Mm-hmm. How the times have changed. So, from 1979 to 1986, List was the controller at a paper box manufacturer outside Denver. He joined a Lutheran congregation and ran a carpool for shut-in church members. At one religious gathering, he met Dolores Miller an army PX clerk, and married her in 1985. Could you imagine that poor woman? You think you found some great guy, and then later you find out he married his former family. Yep. I would never trust anyone else in my entire life. I would cut it all off. (laughs) Uh. In February 1988, the couple moved to a house in the Brandermill neighborhood of uh, Midlothian, Virginia. I'm going to say that was all correct. I did a great job there. You did wonderful. <laughs> 12 out of 10. Uh, where? Okay, so he moved them to this neighborhood in Virginia where List still used the name Bob Clark and resumed work as an accountant at a small accounting firm. It's a bunch of weird names. It's like Madra, Joyner, Kirkham, and Woody. I'm guessing is the firm. Um, in May 1989, the then 18-year-old murder of the List family was recounted on America's Most Wanted during its first year on the air. Love me some America's Most Wanted. Mm -hmm. The segment featured an aged, progressed clay bust sculpted by forensic artist Frank Bender, which turned out to bear a close resemblance to List's actual appearance. On June 1st, less than two weeks after the broadcast, List was arrested at a Richmond accounting firm after one of his Denver neighbors recognized List and reported him to authorities. See, that's the neighbor you want. Mm -hmm. The one that is like, wait, something is not right. Yes, but also mind your own business, neighbor. (laughs) Only be concerned if I go missing. Yes. But otherwise... Mind your business. Um, 
So Liszt continued to stand by his alias for several months, even after his 1989 extradition to Union County, New Jersey. And he finally faced the, uh, like, evidence that they had basically gathered. And inc this included a fingerprint match with Liszt's uh, military records, which, my dude, you're fucking stupid if you don't think that the military still got your ID, like, right. all your stuff. They have basically paid and purchased you. <laughs> they are making sure their investment is still doing good. So, they have the fingerprint match from his military records, as well as evidence found at the crime scene. And he finally confessed his true identity on February 16th, 1990. It took him basically a year. Right. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? At trial, List testified that his financial difficulties reached its peak in 1971 when he was laid off from, like, closure of the Jersey City Bank. He didn't want to tell his family and be humiliated, so he would dress as if he was still employed and follow the same routine for work. He would spend the day at job interviews and reading the newspaper at Westfield train station. List would move money from his mother's bank account to avoid defaulting on the mortgage. And as time went on, the financial struggles progressed and he encouraged his children to get their part-time jobs. He said that it was to teach them maturity and responsibility, but in all actuality, it was to help with the financial struggles of the family. Um, List was also dealing with the fact that his wife's alcoholism was kind of, like, increasing. And her untreated... Uh, I hate these medical terms. Hmm. Tertiary syphilis? I don't know. It's a, it's a form of syphilis that is, like, only... Like... Basically, her first husband had it. Mm -hmm. And it didn't present itself until, like, symptoms of it really didn't start presenting until, like, after mm -hmm. she was already married to him, I guess. Yeah. Like I said, she contracted it from her first husband and concealed it for 18 years. According to his testimony, Helen pressured him into marriage by claiming she was pregnant she also insisted on marrying in Maryland as they did not require a premarital syphilis test mandated in most other states at the time. I mean, it could be true. It could not be true. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Though her health progressively deteriorated, she said nothing to list or her physicians until 1969, when a thorough workup revealed the condition. By then, progression of the disease combined with her excessive alcohol consumption had, according to testimony, transformed her from an attractive young woman 
to an unkept and paranoid recluse. I feel like somebody's making up excuses for why you don't find your wife attractive anymore. Uh So Helen also apparently humiliated uh, John both privately and publicly. Which... He sounds like a true gem. So, I mean, why would you do that? <laughs> I would never. Why? <laughs> um, <laughs> besides the whole alcoholism and syphilis thing, I feel like I relate to this woman because she would often compare his horrible sexual prowess <laughs> to her first husband. <laughs> Get it. Uh, Sarah, you're going to make my life... I'm pay AF, you best believe. I'm going to bring it back tenfold. (laughs) Maybe this is why I'm not um, in a relationship. (laughs) So, a court-appointed psychiatrist um, basically testified that Liz suffered from obsessive Compulsive personality disorder. You're basically trying to say that you're like OCD in that. Mm-hmm. Like, dude. <laughs> and that he saw only two solutions to his situation. He either needed to accept welfare or kill his family and send their souls to heaven. Mm. Seems like a drastic jump. Yep. Welfare was unacceptable in his opinion, and he reasoned that this was because it would expose him and his family to ridicule and violate his authoritarian father's teachings regarding the care and protection of family members. On April 12, 1990, List was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder, At his sentencing, he denied direct responsibility for his actions, stating, I feel that because of my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I ask all affected by this for forgiveness, understanding, and prayer. (laughs) Right? I was like, fuck you. Alright, so the judge didn't buy it, and he said that John List is without remorse and without honor. He said, after 18 years, 5 months, and 22 days, let's be real specific here, (laughs) it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave. He imposed a sentence of 5 terms of life imprisonment to be served. Consecutively, um, the maximum permissible penalty at the time. So, I mean, he still got life in prison. So, I mean, there's that. Mm-hmm. List would go on to file an appeal citing that his judgment had been impaired by post traumatic stress disorder due to his military service. So, first, your OCD. And now you're saying you have PTSD? Like, what? Anything to get out of this. I'm just like, dude. 
He also argued that the letter he left behind at the crime scene, essentially his confession, was a confidential communication to his pastor and therefore inadmissible as evidence. Sir, you left it at a crime scene. Mm-hmm. A nothing personal. You left it. It's not like you went and handed it to the pastor and he turned it over. You left it. <laughs> so, a federal appeals court rejected both arguments as they should. In 2002, List eventually expressed remorse for his crimes. In 2002, Hmm. uh, he told Connie Chung, I wish I had never done what I did. I've regretted my action and prayed for forgiveness ever since. When asked why he didn't take his own life, he said he believed suicide would prevent him from going to heaven where he hoped to reunite with his family. So becoming a murderer is going to send you there? Sounds like a great pathway to take. Call it righteousness all you want, dude. You killed five people. Five people! And you think you were going to heaven? Nah. No, you're going to hang out with, like, Ted Bundy and them. (laughs) (laughs) That's not heaven. List would go on and, like, pass away in uh, jail, basically, due to complications from pneumonia on March 21st, 2008. Um, This was while he was imprisoned at St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, North... I can really cannot speak... In Trenton, New Jersey, his body would go on to be unclaimed. So you don't get to be buried with your family that you know you are so eager to be reunited with. Now, an interesting side note regarding List is in 1972, he was proposed as a suspect in the D.B. Cooper, like, air piracy case. Which, if you don't know that, I'm I'm definitely researching to get like a case one because it's like a little fun one no one dies in it mm-hmm. except for possibly db but <laughs> we don't know that for certain but but, we have no- but there's no other casualties there's no other casualties and it's um it's just a fun little one i figured we could all use a little break but i thought it was so funny that he was considered a possible like suspect because of the timing of his disappearance which happened to be two weeks prior to the airline hack, like hijacking. Uh, multiple matches. He also had multiple matches to the hijacker's uh, description, and the reason that a fugitive accused of mass murder has nothing like. Sorry, I was like, what did I, I like? I try to do shorthand sometimes, and I'm like, this doesn't make I sense saying? to me. So, yeah, so because of the timing of when he went missing, which was two weeks, like, prior to this hijacking, he also had, like, his description also kind of matches the description. And (laughs) he had, like, no, like, like, nothing to lose, really, from, like, doing this. He had already killed his family. It wasn't like he was already with his second wife. So, there was that, but he was 
questioned by FBI investigators after like he was captured for the murder of this of his family, but he denied any involvement in the Cooper case. While his name is still occasionally mentioned, there's really no direct evidence implying that he like was there other than like him looking like the sketches. And the FBI has actually said they don't even consider him a suspect anymore, so there is that. Now, this case has been the subject of many documentaries, TV shows, and movies. You can definitely look them up, but some of the examples include... And here you go, Sloan. Here's your uh, law and order. Dun, dun. He was apparently, like, this case was featured in Savior, the season six, episode 16. Okay. I was like, I'm sure you'll look that up and see if it, like, brings any memories. Um, it's also the subject of the 1987 film, The Stepfather, and its 2009 remake. And if you would like to see the clay bust used to help find list, it used to be in a like crime museum in Virginia, but has since been moved to Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, which we love. I want to go back to like Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge area. And when I was there, like with Sloan and our friend, I was like, I want to go there, but we we were trying to keep it as cheap as we could, so we didn't go. And then when I went with my family, I was trying to talk my sister, who is a crime like person, like she loves Discovery Plus and that. I was trying to talk her into going with me, and she didn't want to do it either. So one of these times when I go back, I am going to this crime museum. I don't care if I have to go alone. I will go to this crime museum. I want to see this bust. I want to see all the other crime stuff. We'll try to work it into the game plan. <laughs> no promises. But that is my case. I know I've definitely heard of it before. It just didn't ring any bells just because... I mean, I've heard how many cases, and then, like, I watch so many true crimes. I definitely remember this being a part of a series on um, Discovery Plus. I don't re It's, like, one of those ones that it just, like, it's a bunch of random cases that they throw together, and they try to piece them, like, in a sort of, like, theme sort of thing. And I forget what it was on, but... They also tend to change some names in those, so I'm always like, oh, I know this story, but, like, I know it has a different name. Right. <laughs> but definitely, if you are in the Pigeon Forge area, check out that museum. Let me know what you think, because for now, I have to just live um, through everybody else. But I guess with that being said... We'll kick you off to the last call. Welcome back to another Last Call with Sloan. Today we're going to talk about the king, the master of spooky season, Tim Burton. Yes. <sighs> ah, the crowd goes wild. 
Always, always love a Tim Burton film. Always, always. I'm most excited for, um, I want to say it's a series, not a movie. They're remaking the... Wednesday. Yeah, they're remaking um, Adam's Family. Yes, and it's called Wednesday, I believe. And it's, uh, but I want to say it's a series, but he's yeah. the producer and maybe director of that. Isn't it Sophia Vergara, um, the mom? Mm, I don't know. You can look up the cast while I'm, while I start this. I want to say no, because I want to say it's Catherine Zeta-Jones. Catherine Zeta, that's right. Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yes. Yes. But super excited for that to come out. Um, I can't remember when exactly that does come out, but it's probably around the releasing of this episode, to be honest. But back to Tim Burton. Did you know that he has the same birthday as Gene Simmons from Kiss? I was like, that kind of explains a few things right there. August 25th, they share the same birthday. Tim Burton was an animator, storyboard artist, and concept artist for Disney during the making of The Fox and the Hound. He also ended up doing some work on The Black Cauldron before he was booted out for being too creepy. He was also working on Frankenweenie, and they said that that was entirely too creepy, and then, like, I want to say he released it on his own, or he came back and released it, and it ended up being a hit. So Disney really lost out by giving Tim Burton the boot because the man's phenomenal. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, all they say for the release date for Wednesday is this fall. So, well, they just started advertising uh, for it. Yeah. So they have all the teasers out. So I'm guessing they're probably aiming for like October-ish. I was thinking like September, the end of September, beginning of October, just yeah. because that's the perfect time for that. Uh, anyway, all right. So Tim Burton has stated that Jack Skellington from The Nightmare Before Christmas is his favorite character. He makes cameos in some of his movies, including James and the Giant Peach, Coraline, Alice in Wonderland, The Princess and the Frog, Sleepy Hollow, and Beetlejuice. I forgot he did Princess and the Frog. I forget that too, but also who else could do the voodoo? Yeah. In cartoon form like Tim Burton. Nobody. Tim Burton wears pinstripe socks to all of his movie premieres and special occasions for good luck. He designed a balloon for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade called B-Boy. He even went so far as to make a backstory for it. B-Boy was made up of used balloons from a children's hospital in London, and he was kept in the basement, obsessing over the story six and dreaming of flying. Burton was such a huge fan of the musical Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, that he saw it three times on Broadway. He said that working on the Batman Return set was difficult because the live penguins were huge divas. I knew you would love that one. (sighs) Tim Burton directed the Bones music video for The Killers. I did not know that. I didn't know that. But, like, looking at it, I can see yeah. it. Tim likes to film a dinner scene in each of his movies, so keep an eye out on that the next time you watch one of his movies. Ten, when Norther Winslow shows his unfinished poem to Edward in Big Fish, the handwriting is actually Tim Burton's. 11. The factory Charlie's dad works at in the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory makes Smilex toothpaste. This is the same toothpaste the Joker was selling in Batman. (laughs) In Batman Returns, Michelle Pfeiffer had to be vacuum sealed into her Catwoman costume. 
talk about a tight squeeze. I also saw somewhere that like she went through six costumes costing a thousand dollars each in the six months of filming. I mean, I could imagine if you're you're being vacuum sealed into an outfit. I would, I can see some buttons popping there. It's not even that. Imagine getting it off. You have to like basically almost rip it. Yeah. Tim says that he's sad because the media portrays him as a weirdo, but in real life, he's just a normal guy. He said, you know, I could put on a clown costume and laugh with the happy people, but they'd still think I'm a dark personality. And to that, I say, we're all a little mad here, Tim. Yes. And those with madness in us truly appreciate all of the madness that you've brought out for us. You also always give Johnny Depp and Helen Helen Bottom Carter. Helena. Helena, Helena, yeah. Yeah. You always give them, like, the best roles. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tim helped Obama throw a Halloween party at the White House in 2009. He made the room look like the tea party scene from Alice in Wonderland. He even went as far as to convince Johnny Depp and Mia was... was... Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I know her last name. It, it's it's something else. <laughs> the, the girl that played Alice. To dress up and show up in character as the Mad Hatter and Alice. I would love it. Before Miley Cyrus was famous, he cast her in her first film role as Ruthie when she was eight years old in Big Fish. Yeah. A little baby smiley. <clears throat> Instead of using computer animated graphics, he had 40 squirrels trained to crack nuts in the scene where Verusha Salt goes down the garbage chute in the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie. <laughs> 40 squirrels. I knew that one. Yeah. (laughs) This is a good one for me, too. Burton wanted Lydia's dress to be red in the wedding scene in Beetlejuice because of the old rhyme that says, Married in red, better off dead. He always has good reasons. Yeah. He created Corpse Bride for his wife, Helena Bonham Carter. He and Helena have two kids together, and Johnny Depp is the godfather to both of them. Of course he is! (laughs) They're just a cute, happy family. Tim Burton says that he admires their friendship so much, and in an interview, he said, What more can I say about him? He is a brother, a friend, my son's godfather. He is a unique and brave soul, someone that I would go to the end of the earth for. And I know full and well he would do the same for me. And also back to Take that! Amber. (laughs) I was just about to say, back to the Johnny and Amber trial, a lot of people were like on the lookout for Tim Burton to be in the courtroom. And quite a few people think that he was there in disguise. So I thought. I would love it. (laughs) (laughs) Next thing you know, he's making a movie about it. (laughs) Yes. It's going to be Liar Liar 2022 version. With the mega pint. Tim's favorite movies are Dracula A.D. 1972, The Wicker Man, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, The War of Gargantuas, and The Omega Man. Okay. Explains a lot. Despite being the main character in Beetlejuice, Michael Keaton only has 17 and a half minutes of screen time. That's crazy. <laughs> but when we I think feel about like it, he's in it so much more than that, uh-uh. but he's not. Uh-uh. No. Jeez. Uh-huh. Tim Burton wrote the gas mask note in Batman when Vicki Vale is given the note with her gas mask at the museum. Burton says that he grew up on horror movies and that he was never really scared of them, only fascinated. That explains so much. 
that explains so much. Where there were like so many good facts. <laughs> All right, so this is the one that blew my mind. We were in the middle of recording whenever I found this one, and Trish like stopped recording to ask what my face was about. In Beetlejuice, Robin Williams, Jim Carrey, Christopher Lloyd, Tim Curry, Jack Nicholson, and Bill Murray were all considered for the role of Beetlejuice before Michael Keaton was cast. I just want everybody to imagine Mrs. Doubtfire as Beetlejuice. <laughs> well, not even that. Like, Tim Curry, too. Like, Tim Curry has done so many. Like, Rocky Horror Picture Show. He was the original mm -hmm. uh, It. Like, he's done so many. Like, like could you imagine some of these people? as Beetlejuice. Like, uh -huh. what? <laughs> and it is a very, like, foundational character, so I can't imagine anybody else but Michael Keaton doing it. Yeah. But just imagining some of, the, like, those great actors <laughs> filling in. Fire. The genie. <laughs> you know? All of them. <laughs> All of them. Winona Ryder dropped out of The Godfather Part 3 in order to star as Kim and Edward Scissorhands. It's a cult classic, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean... And despite what, you know, Amber likes to say, you know, we all knew Johnny didn't actually have hands. Like, scissors for hands. Oh, yeah, no. They were definitely scissors for hands. What are you talking about? <laughs> they were actual scissors. I just scissors. love that that was her. Said the man who convinced the world he had scissors for hands. Ma'am, it was a fucking movie. They don't all think he's walking around with scissors for hands. I might, I might have whenever it first came out and I was a young baby. But now we now we know. Now we know. Um, Johnny Depp's wardrobe and prosthetic makeup took one hour and 45 minutes to apply in Edward Scissorhands. I mean... On that note. Tim Burton said that The Nightmare Before Christmas was inspired after seeing Halloween merchandise in the store being taken down and replaced by a Christmas display. The juxtaposition of ghouls and goblins mixed with Santa and reindeer sparked his imagination. And for that, we are all forever freaking grateful. Yeah. I want to keep my, like, Halloween decorations up all year. So that means I need to change my, uh christmas aesthetic to uh like basically nightmare before christmas which i'm not i'm not opposed to doing we're not totally against mark walberg mark walberg joined planet of the apes after meeting with tim burton for only five minutes he was so anxious to work with the director that he agreed to play any part and dropped out as linus in oceans 11 to do to do the film Nestle provided 1,850 bars of real chocolate for the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie filming. <laughs> That's it? <laughs> That's all? I guess. When asked if he would ever direct a sequel to Planet of the Apes, Tim Burton replied, I'd rather jump out a window. He doesn't usually do a lot of sequels. For her role in Sweeney Todd... Helena Bonham Carter rehearsed her songs while practicing baking techniques <laughs> in order to perfect the quick syncop syncopatic rhythm of the music. In Alice in Wonderland, the Red Queen and the White Queen palaces were designed to resemble the Cinderella's castle at Walt Disney World. Hey. 
Johnny Depp said in an interview at one point that he considered Sweeney Todd to be a long-lost relative to Edward Scissorhands. I can see that. Yeah. I can totally see that. There are people that hate on Sweeney Todd so much. And it's just, it's, you have to understand Tim Burton to really appreciate it. I agree. I agree. It took a group of around 100 people three years to complete The Nightmare Before Christmas. For one second of the film, up to 12 stop motion moves had to be made. I mean, it's... Thanks for putting in the work. Right. And, like, that that doesn't even surprise me, considering when it came out. Like, a lot of the technology and the technology and everything that we have today was not around. So, like, it's... It's a film that even today I feel like holds up. Absolutely. You could you could remake that movie quote unquote better than it was made now, but you can't touch that movie. Yeah. And I feel like it's going to continue standing. It was the standing. first one that I really remember that was like yeah, like that. Yeah. He's He's a brilliant man, okay? Yes. Brilliant, not weird. Brilliant. And my last fun fact that I'm going to leave off with today is the idea for Edward Scissorhands was inspired by a drawing Tim Burton had done when he was a teenager. The drawing depicted a thin, solemn man with long, sharp blades for fingers. Burton, sta yeah. Burton stated that he often had a hard time retaining friendships and was often alone. I get the feeling people just got the urge to want to leave me alone for some reason. I don't know exactly why. <laughs> uh, I wish you're people... just a misunderstood soul, okay? I wish some people would get that urge around me and just leave me the fuck alone. Yeah. But on that note, you are not one of those people. We would love to hear from you and spend some more time with you. You can find us on our socials. We have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. They are all tequila she wrote across the board. You can also email us with any last calls, funny news stories, uh, drink recipes, crime cases, anything like that. Tequila she wrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon set up for as little as $2 a month. You'll get ad-free episodes. You also get a bonus episode. And then we have higher tiers that, you know, you get even more bonus content and stuff like that. Um, we do have some merch over there. Uh, easiest way to find us is by going to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote. Or you can go to our link tree, which is pretty much linked in all of our socials. And you can click on that and it'll get you a direct link to our Patreon page. But thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. <laughs>